Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode of the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I'm your host, Radha Palamaryu, Managing Director of Health Global. And I'm thrilled today to have with us Nada Sanders, who is a distinguished professor of supply chain management at Northeastern Universities, Damore McKim School of Business. She's also served as a visiting professor at MIT, at Harvard Business School. She teaches and has educated lots and lots of people across many years in the field of supply chain management, particular focus on strategic supply chain design, demand management, technology adoption. She's written several books. She's actually writing the second edition of the Human Machine book, which we will talk about a little bit later. So I'm very pleased to, to welcome Nada. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. Super. So maybe first and foremost, how did you end up in supply chain and teaching supply chain and educating in supply chain in the first place? Great question. And I think in some ways, this will ultimately speak to what young people should do in terms of careers. I think like most people, I fell into it. So my undergraduate was in engineering, mechanical engineering, and I come from a science family. My mother would always say, oh, you know, she does something in business because business is a sort of generic thing, right? So everybody in my family and my orbit is either in healthcare, doctors, engineers. So following that path, my undergraduate was in mechanical engineering and specifically fluid mechanics. And I say that because only looking back now, I would say, wow, there is some correlation between fluid mechanics and supply chains. So undergraduate in that, and then you go through this, well, what am I going to do? Should I follow and be a physician like everybody in my family? And I tried that route. I took advanced graduate classes in mechanical engineering. I happen to love differential equations. That was like my favorite courses ever. And But a medical career isn't really good for someone that faints at the sight of blood. So that did not go over very well. I took actually all the prereqs. I took microbiology, actually one of the most fascinating pictures that I kept on my wall was a virus attacking a bacterium. And so I know all that stuff, but I really couldn't make that my career. So I sort of, I wasn't sure. And then I happened to bump into somebody who said, you know, there is this thing, operations management, which is really great for people that have a strong technical background. So I took some classes and I've got to be honest, I mean, the business school compared to engineering, it's a lot easier. So <laughs> But it's also a different world. I came from a world in engineering where, um, you know, I was used to working in teams and I still have that. I love working in teams where we work together. And I, I that was sort of where I was very comfortable. You work in teams and you solve problems. And I remember my actually my very first class at I uh, was at Ohio State at the Fisher School. And uh, there was somebody sitting next to me in, in one of the business prereq classes. And I was asking him some of the questions. And I said, maybe we could get together and work on the problems. And he looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm competing with you. We're not a team. We're competitors. And I realized then that this was a really different world, right? But then I pursued it. I got my PhD in operations. My minor was in supply chain, but, and here's the but, I was, I, you're taking classes, you're a doctoral student, you're trying to 
figure out what you want to do. Everybody was really into manufacturing, in lean, you know, Toyota production system, all of that. And I happened to take as an elective a forecasting class. We had a professor that was visiting from Carnegie Mellon, and I took this class as an elective, and I was absolutely captivated. I was captivated with forecasting models, the way they can be used to predict anything, because we essentially use the same kind of mathematical tools to forecast whether it's climate change or whether it's demand or whether it's scarce resources. And in his case, he was at Carnegie Mellon, and he was actually forecasting crime in the Pittsburgh areas, and he was working with the Pittsburgh Police Department. And it was just so interesting that there was these mathematical tools that could do this. So I began this sort of direction into forecasting married with operations and supply chains. And I was very lucky uh, that an organization, CSEMP, that you know, I ended up getting the doctoral research award, which was a big deal. And I, you know, I didn't even, I was so young, Radu, I didn't even know what a big deal that was and the kind of doors that would open up to me. My idea was in forecasting, but through them, I was able to get access to warehouses and companies that gave me data. And suddenly it began this journey. So I remember going in the first time and I was, again, I was a very young in my career. And I say that because I really didn't understand how businesses worked. I was very technical. I really thought I was going to go gather data that would arrive to me in some sort of neat bundle, the kind of thing that we see in classes, and that I would be able to apply some sophisticated, very cool algorithm, and I would be able to offer it to them, and I would be well known for it. And looking back, it was really ridiculous. First of all, as you know, most companies don't have data that is oftentimes clean, accessible. And that was just in itself a rude awakening to go through the process of gathering this data. And of course, it was, you know, before all the technology that we have now. And then the whole issue of the organization and the judgmental overrides. And that began my journey in terms of how humans work with technology. And who knew that we would be in this place today where this would be really important. But you know, suddenly I was studying a whole different area. So I was very technical, but then I got the chance to work with many, many companies. I did actually a fair amount over the years expert witnessing. Uh, I tried to avoid it because it's a lot of work. And I'm proud to say that in all the companies that I've worked with, I've actually won all the cases. But what it allows you to do is to actually learn and to actually see behind the scenes. Because when you're an expert witness, you have access and you can actually see what does the software algorithm actually look like? How are decisions actually made? And that taught me a lot. So yes, there's the you know money aspect and you do get paid for it and so forth, but there's a bigger value because you walk away and you've actually seen the problems. Because one of the issues that we have is you know any conference that you go to, we just see best practices. We see all the shiny new objects and everybody talks about you know how great they're doing. We don't see the problems. We don't see the challenges. So all of that got me along this path. And there I am. I sort of fell into it. 
and evolved and suddenly was a person that could understand supply chains, keeping in mind that I'm also, my, my PhD is in operations management. That is really important because I understand the system internally. I understand how it is connected across all the linkages. And also because I spent so many years in forecasting and I'm still really tied to everybody there, I understand how we do prediction and more importantly, how the human machine interface takes place. So I think from that standpoint, I didn't plan on it. It turned out to be pretty unique because most people that actually do forecasting, they know all the various models, they know how to make the forecasts, but that's where it ends. So you make the forecast and you have different, different performance metrics, different yeah. stat metrics, mean square error, mean absolute error, you know, whatever. And that's where it stops. Given my background, I'm able to translate that into operational issues, uh, cost, you know, how do we do setup? How do we source? Because forecasts and forecast errors don't translate one-on-one. -on -one. You take these stat metrics, how do you translate that into things that are made in batches, into pallets, into order quantities that occur in bundles, right? It's not a one-on-one -on -one, uh, way to translate. It's so, an end-to-end. -end. It's, it's that end-to-end. -end. Yes. Um, and, and it's interesting, I mean, in hearing you talk, it's, so two themes, one, like so many other great people that, that we both know, you fell into it. So that that seems to be a common theme. Not a lot of people studied supply chain or new supply chain. It became a big, big thing in the last two years. It's obviously been there for about 20, 30 years, but most people fell into it. And second, that part that you mentioned now with the end-to-end, -end, that's typically what makes a difference between, um, a huge difference between a great, great supply chain operations leader and one that may be very technically savvy but again, you know, you can be the best procurement or the best manufacturing leader that does not make you the best COO or chief supply chain officer. So great sharing on that front. And I wanted to steer it now a little bit. We spoke offline in this process of, of the new edition of the book, yeah, Human Machine, The Human Machine. You were sharing with me that you're interviewing all these CEOs. AI has just blown on the scene of the world. Uh, I mean, it's been there for a long time. It's just that we never you maybe me and other people you know lay, lay laymen on the street we didn't quite use it in the way that chat gpt all of a sudden and it feels like overnight enables us now to use it so in this process of you interviewing ceos on the impact of ai and what do, do they think and for your new book tell us a little bit what what are you finding what are you hearing from them what should we expect sure sure so the first edition of the Human Machine book came out at the very end of 2019. And we all know what happened afterwards, what 2020 looked like, what 2021 looked like, and here we are. In 2019, we were interviewing, we had gone into companies, the, the objective, the initial objective was to look at leading companies that you know lead in AI and technology. This is again in 2019. The impetus was to see all the greatest things that technology can do. When we went into companies where we found over and over and over again that it was the human element and how that technology was integrated within the organization that made the key difference. It wasn't the technology itself. 
the book comes out in 2019. And then obviously, I think what we all witnessed was the, uh, the I don't want to say collapse of technology, but what technology is good at and what is not good at. And I say that because I remember December 2019, talking to companies about robots, AI, the latest and greatest. And then I remember March 2020, three months later, being locked in and reading a New York Times article telling me how to sew my own mask. And all I could think about is the, you know, where we were within three months talking about robots and now how am I going to sew my own mask? So we had really gone very, very primitive. And if you remember, I mean, the, the most ordinary items like PPE, hand sanitizer, we couldn't get those. I mean, the toilet paper story, you know, as comical and tragic at the same time as it was, it really revealed all the frailties. So now we are, we were asked to redo the book, updated in this sort of post-COVID era. Again, I almost feel in many ways that it's kind of repeating what happened with the first edition. So we started out to look at, okay, in the post-COVID era, what is it going to look like? And as we had embarked, interviewing CEOs, really literally just as we had embarked, what comes out is, you know, generative AI, suddenly we've got chat GPT, you know, and as quickly as we are as we can count, we're going from ChatGPT, ChatGPT3, wait, there's uh, four, there's five, there's Bing, there's Bart, there's Mind Journey, I, there's just, you know, Dolly, there's, and it is exploding almost on a daily basis. What we've been able to see so far is a very common theme about, you know, from all the companies, all the executives. And I think these, this is really important, is to really understand that, you know, as one executive put it, look, what worked the last 30 years isn't even going to get you through the next three. In addition to the human element that is now, I think, bigger than ever, the importance of talent. It is a specific kind of talent that I can speak to a little bit later if you want to. I can go into more details. But it's bigger than that. And it is the idea that a new business model is needed. Everybody that I have talked to has discussed the idea that the mindset needs to change and that a new business model and a very consciously developed, agile business model has to be put in place. As one of the CEOs put it, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant, said, look, what companies are still doing is thinking that they can digitize a horse cart. And what they don't understand is that their competitors are creating a digitized automobile. And so you cannot take your old business model or the horse cart, right, and just, you know, tag on AI and digitize it. You have to create a very different business model. And it is really requiring a systems thinking and ability to synthesize. And one of the things that has also come up over and over is the ability for companies and talent, and when I say talent, that is everybody from CEOs, boards, leaders, is to self-diagnose, to look at, honestly, strengths and weaknesses, and to really reinvent and create and be prepared to create. 
Another CEO said to me, the days of where the machine tells you what to do are gone. It used to be where, you know, we took the output of the algorithm and this is what it was. Our need now is to question, to question the algorithm and to add that extra to it. But in order to be able to do that, we need a whole new set of skills that you know come into education to be able to think of different realities, to understand cues that are happening in the environment, to really be knowledgeable of our domain. And so it is a huge challenge. But I go back to this repeated thing that I've heard, companies that don't do this, that don't change, will not be here. And that was said to me in January, February, it's continued to be said to me. And, you know, we're seeing it happening around us. Mm, no, absolutely. And let's go. Yeah, let's absolutely go on the talent side and on the more detailed skills that you see. And I mean, maybe we link it this we start broad, broad level. I mean, in general, in businesses, and then we link it also to the, to the level of supply chain. What do you see? I mean, how how do how do we even keep ourselves updated with this daily so, bombardment? So I, I think it is I think it's really important to have humility. And that is something, if I had to say, you know, what was my strength? I really was humility. Never did I approach the domain and have hubris and say, well, I know it. Let me tell you, I know a lot. And I know a lot about a lot of things. But as new things come about or have come about, I would reskill myself. I would relearn. So, you know, going back to when we started with my background being really quantitative. And even in my own research, I remember when structural equation modeling came out, which comes out of psychology. I didn't know anything about it. So what did I do? I took some classes and I figured, well, what can I do? I can learn. And so at each point, at each level, I would say, well, I will reskill, I will learn. And at each point, it allows me different perspectives. It is stunning to me that fairly recently, we are continuing to still see what I saw in the early part of my career, where you have internal to a company, the various functions, don't talk to one another. And I think technology has exacerbated that. You know, well, you're a supply chain planner, you're procurement, you're marketing, and so forth. Without question, that has to end. We have to be able to work in teams and understand the organization as a whole, the bigger picture, the PL, the metrics, and how what we do contributes to the benefit of the organization as a whole and how to work with uh with teams all across the globe and certainly within our area so the breadth of what we know and what we do has to change it has to be bigger and that requires learning reskilling i mean obviously companies need to invest in talent talent needs to invest in itself but it goes beyond, you know, we need digital literacy, but you know, I've been saying for a while that I think coding is going to sort of drop off. And I've actually said it for about five years because I could see it coming in. This is somebody who used to program, but the reality of it is machines are teaching themselves. We need to be able to take that output, question mm. it, 
understand assumptions that go into it, but then we have to add something else. And then we have to be able to communicate that. We have to think in a very different kind of a way and ideate in a very different kind of a way. So one of the things that is has been repeated, I would say by everybody that I've talked to, is the importance of critical thinking critical thinking, negotiation, communication, ability to work across cultures, across domains, across disciplines, we can no longer stay in our respective areas, in marketing, in operations, in procurement. We have to be able to be inquisitive and curious and understand how to work in teams. And that is absolutely essential from boards, all the way down. You know, one of the executives pointed out to me that one of the problems is that, and he actually chairs a board, is that boards today continue to look at what we need today and what do we need out of our leaders. So that's how they will select who the CEO is, what the leadership is going to look like, and so forth, based on what today looks like. They, the boards, need to have breath as well and to be more futuristic and to understand what are the kinds of skills that are going to be needed moving forward to get us to the next place. And then select your CEO and leadership looking at that, not what is needed today. Mm. I love it. And it's it's basically something that I've I've been sharing for a while. Soft skills are the hard skills. It's it's all the soft elements. Of course, it matters. I think it still is going to be important if you're going to be a chief operations officer or chief supply chain officer. You need to understand operations. You need to understand manufacturing. You need hope. You have to understand it. That is your input. But then you need the soft skills. You need both. And this is coming from somebody who I learned those things. I am an introvert. I'm a mathematician, you know, quantitative. I'm nerdy. Okay. And it took me time. It took, I would force myself to network. And I tell my students, you have to. Um, I would push myself. And it wasn't easy. And I'm saying that as somebody who is not a natural extrovert, somebody who's not a natural, um, you know, soft skills kind of a person. I'm way better one-on-one, -on -one, but I had to learn it. In order to survive, this is true of companies, it is true of CEOs, of leaders, of boards, all the way down to my students coming out. You have to learn new skills all the time. And right now is the time for soft skills. Uh, this is something that cannot be taken away, cannot be replicated. Those soft skills should be able to read your team, to be able to read the facial expressions cross-culturally because we are working in a global environment, to be able to read the room, uh, to be able to understand what body language is saying, and to be able to connect in order to get everybody on board in the same kind of a way. So we have to have digital literacy. We have to understand technology and how all these inputs come to us. But then we have to be able to take it to the next level. Without those skills, companies will not make it. We will not make it. So, you know, unless you're ready to retire, we're, you know, coming into, I saw Tom Friedman, was it a week ago, said, you know, we're at this Promethean moment in history, I believe that to be the absolute case where everything is going to change and we have to be, you know, ready to change with it. Yeah, and I was like, you know, actually, when when you started telling or sharing your history, which I didn't know, 
where you started and all the you know the uh, all the different engineering studies that you did the quantitative the mathematics and i was like oh you come across to me as a very extroverted person that's very geekish stuff <laughs> i'm not you know so in that's, fact, that's, it's fascinating yeah and and that's actually i i give this example i have a couple of friends i'm extroverted by nature but I have a couple of friends like you, they trained themselves, they were introverted, and they realized, look, but I mean, I need it as a skill set, it's useful in my career, it's useful in general, so I'm going to teach myself, I'm going to force myself to take some of these extroverted traits, even if ultimately inside I'm still an introvert, because it it, it helps in this path, so it's, I see it also with you, and it's great. You know, one of the people that I had actually interviewed was our president Northeastern, Joseph Aoun, who, I mean, truly, I, I found the interview so brilliant. And one of the things that he said that I found especially interesting was that today, hiring talent, you're actually not hiring people for what they know today. You are hiring people for their ability, willingness to recreate themselves, to reskill, that they're continually growing and engage in critical thinking and critical dialogue because the boundary between what machines provide and what humans offer is changing all the time. And I thought about that. I thought that was absolutely true. That boundary is constantly evolving and we're constantly questioning, well, what's the machine able to do? What's the human able to do? But hiring the talent that understands that and that is curious and I would say humble too, and be able to be willing to say, I'm constantly going to reinvent myself. I'm going to reskill. I'm going to learn new things. And that's the thing where, you know, when I look at it and I say, you know, I, I went into things that were uncomfortable. I'm always pursuing what is uncomfortable, but what is needed in order to make a difference and to have an impact and you know not sit back in terms of what's comfortable and for me it would be comfortable just to stay in my sweatpants and to just read and write that would be very comfortable but that's not going to have an impact it's not going to let me grow it's not going to help the businesses and the people i work with and i want to to ask you a little bit further i like the analogy that you used with the you know you have a you have a cart horse cart that you're trying to digitalize whilst your competition is building a a digital car there is also the reality that of course when you start from small on from nothing i was recently i was a couple of months ago i was at the tesla fremont factory i had some exchanges with some of the manufacturing heads there and they were telling me the story and how how little they knew when they started and how even on the purchasing procurement side not almost none of the team at tesla was from an automotive background so they really built what tesla is today kind of from not knowing much and they, they they managed to do what they did but they kind of not kind of they disrupted in a big way and they pushed the whole electric vehicles they they accelerated the whole trend i mean it was happening anyways but they accelerated it and they made it a lot more interesting faster now it's a lot more difficult for a toyota or a bmw just keeping to the same comparison industry to do that because it's one thing is to start from zero. Another thing is to have a lot of skeletons in your <laughs> clauses to have all the legacy systems to have all the. By and large, when I when we look at industry, and I, I welcome your your opinion on this. If you look at large companies, there's very also very few that have successfully done it. I I, I give lots of credit, not not only myself. I think in general, Satya at Microsoft has done an amazing job. Yes. 
for a long time amazon i mean now let's see with the new ceo with andy let's let's see i mean he needs a little bit more more time to to see how much of a legacy i think obviously tim cook has done fairly well to optimize the machine that at the back of what what steve jobs had built but by and large there's very few companies that have managed to do that reinvention right it's almost like a you know a quantum leap of their models so i guess my question if i can distill it is how to do it or what are some of the principles in which some of the larger companies can do this well this reinvention and this digitalization of the horse car you know I'm, i wanted to say oh read our book the human machine and the new edition that's coming out in the human machine so we do offer a model in the human machine it's called the 4i model and i don't have the time to get into every detail of it but the first aspect of it is really to have a higher purpose a higher you know purpose for what the business is beyond profits we are adapting that and have new information on that and i think beyond that is you know within the scope of that rather is to have a different business model to understand what you're trying to do and then really make sure the business model meets that higher purpose what are you about and i think the mistake for so many companies is looking at the industry looking at the landscape and then copying i saw this certainly before covid follow the leader and we're continuing to see it today obviously tesla has not done that but you have to really that introspection that self diagnosis in terms of what you are good at and what you're trying to do and what is that higher calling look everybody wants to make money companies have to make money it's not a bad word they have to be profitable in order to sustain themselves but they have to stand for a whole lot more than that so really looking at the landscape and really marrying what they are good good at what those skills are and this goes back to talent as well what that higher purpose is and i think very much with a blue ocean it has to go to that you cannot go into the red ocean and a lot of companies again follow the leader and i think when we look at in the auto industry and i could really go into a lot of detail here i don't have the time but we can literally look at what the other players are what is toyota good at and we could almost carve out in terms of what that niche might look like where they're not going you know they're not butting heads or mimicking tesla but they're creating their own universe their own reality with technology and ai so i think that is really important and we do see that if you look at the broader landscape of the auto industry from bmw and you start to kind of span out you see companies that have a really clear understanding of what they are about and the second part of this that i think is also really important is to understand that this is dynamic and it changes very quickly and i think at a much much quicker pace now. Tesla looks very different today than it did just a few years ago in terms of where they stand in the marketplace. Obviously, we could follow their, you know, numbers on a, you know, daily basis on an hourly basis, but what will Tesla look like in 5 years and who else will emerge and be really novel given what they're doing? I think putting things in place for a business for today but also rapidly evolving and understanding that we also want to stay in business and not be short 
cited is absolutely important. So we can't say today, this is what the winner is, that we got the gold medal, but who is standing 10, 20 years from now and what will they look like? Mm, well said. Final question, Nada. What would be, and you've shared a lot already, but if you if you again look at the, the next five years, yeah, as much as we can, we can possibly even imagine what will happen given the pace of change nowadays. But what would be one or two pieces of advice if you were to talk, and you talk a lot to, to CEOs that you would give them? So I really think they need to surround themselves with diverse people. And when I say diverse, I'm not talking about in the kind of thing that we talk about gender or race, but ideas. This is extremely important. One of the things in forecasting that, you know, I became, you know, I heard of the term futurist. And, and I come from a very traditional word of forecasting. We need people that ideate, that are creative, and bring those together with, you know, people that are in computer science and AI. CEOs, senior executives need to surround themselves with a very broad set of talent and really go on retreats where they're putting their heads together. I spoke to one CEO and this was, this sounded a little new agey and I'm kind of exploring it, but he's really into mindfulness. His company has brought in and offered a few years back meditation to the workers and leaders. And he said it was something that was in the beginning really voluntary and then also teaching people how to communicate, how to not display anger, but to actually dialogue. This is not my area. I'm not a psychologist, sociologist, but I am telling CEOs to bring a breath of people together and hear various ideas. We absolutely have to ideate differently. I've gone into work with a number of companies in terms of scenario planning. Uh, absolutely critical. We can no longer just look at a very old school way to forecast. We cannot look at models with their parameters. And we obviously saw what happened with models during COVID and how they collapsed. We have to look at scenario planning and develop a very agile system in order to adapt in this very dynamic way. And it's going to require creating a team of people that are very different and having them work together and having everybody have humility and respect for the other group. So collectively, they come up with a different, really amoeba-like structure that is able to thrive and survive in this really changing landscape. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. Well, on, on that note, thanks a lot for the time. Great open sharing, Nana. Keep keep up the great work. Looking forward to the to the book. And I'm sure we will you will continue to inspire many, many more generations of supply chain professionals globally. Thank you, Ryder. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcodglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, 
course, contact us as well to find out how we can help you.